As parents, we love our kids beyond all rationality. And sometimes, against our better judgment, we'll give in to their, I'll say, request. Feel free to hear nagging or whining or whatever else your kids may do when they're not here. But every once in a while, in order to maintain our sanity, we have to draw a line and say, enough. And so in our house, I've got a line. And so now the kids definitely have a car that they choose to ride in over another. Because one car will have their favorite music or their favorite story. And the other car has stood up and said, I'm an adult. And I'm going to listen to refined adult things. Like sports talk radio. It's not very funny. Or country music. Because this is important. We've all done it, and every once in a while, we'll be driving along, and, and Christian will not like what I'm listening to. And so, from the back seat, I'll hear his rendition of the VeggieTales Top 40, and I'll turn it up a little bit, and he'll turn himself up a little bit, and it gets louder and louder. So, one of his favorites right now is a song entitled, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. He likes the song so much that he likes to call CJ, and the J stands for Josiah, so Christian Josiah, but instead of going around telling people, it's Christian Joshua, like his cousin's name, but if you don't know the song, it goes something like this, let's see what it Jericho, and, and I found it on a map, 
And so we started backtracking from Jericho and the Jordan River and, and the, the, the wilderness and the Red Sea and Egypt. And we started talking about this and trying to explain to a three-year-old as best as we can. And, you know, and part of the conversation was that it's a land, the promised land, the land flowing with, with milk and honey. And a few days later, he comes up to me and he says, Dad, what does it mean when you said that the promised land flows with milk and honey? And I sat there and I didn't have a good answer for him. Not one that I thought a three-year-old could understand or that was worthy of a pastor. And so this morning, I invite you on a journey, my journey, of trying to explain to a three-year-old what a land flowing with milk and honey is all about, and the people and the God behind it. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be looking in Joshua chapter 5, and um, this is a story, think of the story where they have crossed miraculously across the Jordan River. And this people are camped in the Jericho Plain, just outside of a town called Gilgal. And God speaks to Joshua. And he tells them, I want you to make knives out of flint. And circumcise all of the men. And this is where I pick up this account. Joshua chapter 5, verse 4. Now, this is why he did so, why Joshua did this. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men of military age, when they had left Egypt, had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. The promise that a land would flow with milk suggests that there are an abundance of goats and cows and an abundance of pasture land to, to sustain them. To suggest that it flows with honey implies that the land has lush, fresh vegetation and flowers. But more importantly, it tells about God who is generous, abundantly generous to his people. Earlier this month, I had the privilege to attend the family wedding down in Irvine. And uh, it was Grace's cousin's wedding. And it was outdoors um, and on a golf course. And, and the groom was just dressed to the nines. And that was a beautiful bride. And they asked Christian to be the Bible boy. And it was just a great service. 
also spent time with a professional beekeeper. Because she wanted to get a professional's opinion about these biblical teachings. Not necessarily a pastor or a theologian's opinion, but a professional opinion from those people. And this is what she learned from the beekeeper. In ideal conditions, an average hive of bees will travel over 55,000 miles and hit over 2 million flowers in order to get one pound of honey. It's a lot, isn't it? We have several students right now on their East Coast history tour from the academy. They'll tell you that it's a long flight across country. To get one pound of honey is an average of 18 cross-country flights. Productive hive can make up to two pounds of honey a day. And then once the honey is made, the hive needs to stay ideally at about 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And so in order to do this, if it's too warm, the bees will go out and they'll gather water, kind of drink it, come back to the hive and kind of regurgitate it out, and then they'll start singing. And they'll create a natural air conditioner in the hive to maintain that ideal 96 degrees. If it gets too warm or too cold, then they'll do some other things without water, but they'll remain idle as possible to let this heat build up. But many natural factors come into the production of honey. Whether it snows, when it snows, too early in the season, too late in the season, how much rain did you have? Have there been changes in vegetation and the surroundings of weather patterns? Has, has certain grasses or certain weeds or certain trees popped up that is not usually in that area? That's why when you hear of the promised land being overflowing with milk and with honey, you recognize it's not just something you say. It actually tells us something. God promises a land that is in top working order, functioning with God-ordained rhythms. And the result was a natural abundance, an invitation to come and taste and see and experience and live with a God that is good. I think David knew something about this when in Psalm 19, he, he talks about the Lord being sweeter than honey or honey dripping from honeycomb. The promised land in Egypt, they serve as bookends to another land the wilderness. And just two months after being miraculously led out of Egypt into the promised land, they began to become discontented. They began to grumble. And they look and they long for the home that they have in Egypt, even if they were an oppressed people. Because as we all know, sometimes the, the devil we know is, is better than the devil we don't. And so we long for what's familiar. 
they were not able to see past their immediate context to realize that their God, their God of the land is a God that wants nothing but the best for them. That He can provide. They failed to see that their place of landlessness was an opportunity to trust and to experience God's goodness rather than to crumble. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I feel this tension. And I think they were feeling it too, this tension, this need to be sufficient. And we get into trouble, and they get into trouble when their need to be sufficient exceeded God's desire to be their sufficiency. And so, Moses tells Aaron, and I invite you to turn with me if you have the Bibles to Exodus chapter 16, verse 9. Exodus 15, 16, verse 9. Moses tells Aaron, saying to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. God goes through an awful lot to remind you over and over again that He is sufficient for them. Because apparently it wasn't enough for them to remember that God is sufficient when He brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't enough for them to remember that God is sufficient for them when He parted the Red Sea and they crossed over on dry land. It wasn't enough when they had experienced life with God leading them directly. And so yet again, He announces, I am sufficient for you. And this time, hopefully you'll remember, because I will provide you two signs every day, quail and manna, something that they didn't understand, bread from an economy that was totally foreign to them, meat that they did not work for, yet they struggled to recognize that God is sufficient. 
The wilderness was not a managed land like Egypt was. It was something foreign to them. And even though they were, they were managers of those lands as slaves, they understood it. But the wilderness was also an opportunity for them to experience God's complete goodness. Yet they longed for another land. A land that one day they hoped to take control of and to manage themselves. And as they wandered, an old generation passes. And we can begin to see glimpses of a new generation that recognizes that their God, this God must be a God of the landless and those that have land. Because if it wasn't, why would he invite us to the promised land? God provides man at quail because he not only does he want to fill their empty stomachs, but he wants to fill their yearning for good things in their life. Walter Bergerman explains kind of this experience of the nation going through the various lands this way. The land is always a place where memories of slavery and manna are recalled for these people. Land is always where Israel must come to terms with the Lord of their memories and the Lord of their hopes. It's always a place for promises and demands, for words to be spoken and heard between God and man. As important as the promised land was in the community of God's people, I believe that the promised journey is the centrality of a life with God. God wanted them to understand over and over again that I am sufficient for you. So now comes a portion of the sermon where we're supposed to kind of tell you the, the what does that matter? So what? Kathy's smiling. We kind of always kind of think about this as pastors when we're providing something. And I can tell you that, I can stand here and tell you that it's important to, to recognize that God is with us. Whether we're, we're bonded in slavery or whether we're wandering or whether we're living a life of promise. I can tell you that God wants to you to know that He is sufficient for whatever that you are going through. But I thought I'd do something different this morning. I thought I'd kind of share with you what we try to, to emphasize, we're just trying to emphasize this with our junior high students. Something that we learned a few weeks back at our children's pastor's convention. They call it the three-two-one method, and you may be familiar with it. So, three things that I've learned, and then two things that I'll do differently or act upon based on what I've learned, and one question that I'll take. So, I'll share them with you. For me, three things that I've learned. The first is that the promise-less life, one without promise, may be easier. But I want to choose to be in a life of a promised journey. 
sufficient for me was the essence of a life with God. The third thing I learned or relearned is the blessing to not have all the answers. Especially when you're the pastor and your kid asks you something that many might consider to be a no-brainer. So three things that I've learned to relearn. Two things that I'll act upon based upon what I've learned. The next time Christian or anyone asks me to tell them about a land flowing with milk and honey, I'll tell them that God is perfectly enough for us. No matter where we are in life, be it enslaved, wandering, or living in the promised land. Second thing I'll do, I will not waste honey. Because I want to honor the intricate process that God has put in place. And one question that I have and I leave with you to consider this week. What is my Egypt, my safety net, that prevents me from recognizing and experiencing God's enough in my world?
happening here? Recognizing and experiencing God's enough 